0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. This, uh, this presentation is um, uh, part, part science, part social, uh, political science, part confessional. Um, so there's, there's, it's kind of, a, I don't want to spend too much time talking about me. Personally, but in a way, I see myself as a kind of paradigm, um, not a paragon, but a paradigm, which is to say that i, I don't I'm, I'm, I want to be vulnerable today to talk about some of the about what it the, the forces that made me white I mean I am white, right but the, when I say made me white, I mean like what it means to grow up white. This is one of the things that I am become um, Incredibly uh, aware of, as I only as an adult, not as uh, when I was your age, when I was in college, I was clueless. I had no idea that I was white. I, I didn't know I was white. I was just, I was just me. I had no concept what that means or what that meant. So I'm, I'm coming at this as someone who admits that I, I didn't really get it until late in the game. And so part of what I am doing or using this sort of platform is to try to use myself as a starting point uh, in, in this discussion about uh, race that we're having in this country right now, but also as a um, as a, I am a product of that, that system, which is designed to raise up people like me to positions of power. Um, and how ironic that I'm standing in front of people, like, talking to you as if I'm in charge. So it, I, I realize at the same time I'm talking about that I've been groomed to be a person, a white man in power, that I'm actually telling you about that story as I am a white man in power, even though I'm not like a CEO or anything. Um, I'm a professional. right? So it's kind of, I'm aware of that as it, as it happens, but I'm, I'm going to just continue to plow through that uh, at with, the, with the understanding that there is, there is a greater goal um, here. So what I, I call this um, talk, uh, Being White, Seeing Black. I didn't just leave, I just shut the door, <laughs> that was it, I'm done. Um, but this is the one story that sort of uh, ignited my imagination, and I had done this a couple years ago actually for a freedom school, and I went back and looked at it. It was terrible. It was a terrible presentation. Uh, you know, I was still growing, in my own understanding about that was, and uh, I ditched the whole thing and completely redid it. But I got to say, this is the one thing that sort of um, got, me, got me interested in this. Uh, this is uh, Darren Wilson. This is the this is the policeman that um, that was involved in the, that was th- was the shooter at Fer- in Ferguson. Um, he is the police officer. This is a picture that was taken in the hospital right after the event. Uh, right after the event, as he was in there, and this uh, this face. I mean, it, he just looks like a regular guy, right? I mean, like this isn't this doesn't look like the face of a killer, although he did. Um, he did kill Brown. Um, what's his first name? Joan. Michael Brown. Right? Is it, oh, my God. There's so many names. I can't remember. Michael Brown. Yeah. But this is, one, this is the one that caught my attention. This is the, one I, this is the, this is the quote that I want to read to you The sort of start way out. And then we'll kind of come back to this actually at the end. So um, Wilson then, still in his car, looked out at Brown who, quote, and this is his quote, had the most intense aggressive face. The only way I can describe it it looks like a demon that's how angry he looked I just saw his hands up I don't know if they were closed yet on the way of going closed I saw this and that face coming at me and I just went like this and I shielded my face right that idea that his face looked like a demon to him um, and that there's another point where he he said um, I felt like a little child I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to do this, but there's another point in this testimony where he talks to about being um, feeling like he was a little child uh, and that, he w- that there was a, like a monster coming after him and he felt like a little child and he saw the face of a demon. Now, it's very tempting for us to look at that and go, yeah, right, right, but I, I want to take that actually as the premise for this talk, to actually take that seriously to take that seriously, that in that moment, um, this police officer, Darren uh, Wilson, that when he saw that, that he actually saw the face of a demon at that point. And so the question for me, and the question I'm going to come at this, and and that as a white man, seeing a black man come at him triggered an association, triggered a vision in his mind that created an incredible sense of fear and panic. And so I, I'm very interested in because I stu- study genocide and, and talk about this a lot in my class about the mechanics of fear and what happens actually on the neurological level when a person is is terrified or when a person is scared. So there's, that's the sort of the second half of that is what I want to talk about the science of fear and what happens in our brain when we encounter fear and how fear is built. But I have to I want to also back up before I do this and sort of take this I want to take this quote seriously. <coughs> And we can measure sort of the implications of what happens if we take Darren Wilson's words at face value. And we actually believe him when he says that he saw the face of a demon, and that he felt like a little child and being chased by a monster. I actually believe him when he says that. Now, does that mean, I want to say this right out front, does that mean that that justifies his actions? No. Those are two very different things. There's one thing about understanding exactly what his experience was. And there's another thing about assessing and judging what his actions were. Right, So I, I want to make a clear distinction right now as we go into this that I'm talking about human perception. I'm talking about how people, and in this case, I want to look particularly about how white people see blackness in America. And what are the factors, the cultural, historical, and neurological factors that, that, that led into this young man, who is otherwise a, uh, an upstanding citizen, Right? He's a police officer. He's trusted. We give him a gun. We tell him you won't be t- you're going you all have different rules. Teach him how to kill. Te- I mean every, there's nothing in his record that said that he was <coughs> although wait, there was something. There was there was one of those um, officers. I'm not sure whether it was Ferguson, who had actually been kicked out of another police program, but they didn't uh, vet him properly, but I don't think this is the guy. That's the um, that's another one. Then that's a different problem. I'm sorry, Dr. Warren, yeah. Uh, I will go off of this. We're going to go in the Prezi now. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, so, wait, no, oh, okay, so we're going to go into this one. And this is where we're going to, we're going to go at this from, from a his, kind of a historical point of view. And this is where my own sort of journey comes in because I have a confession to make. This, I just had this thought uh, three days ago. This is this to say that I am unformed. I still have a lot of work to do as a white man, so I'm con- confessing here that one of the things that still comes up in my head, but this time I caught it. I didn't, th- what's different now is that I hear the voice and I catch it instead of just not hear the voice and just continue on. But the voice that still exists three days ago, I added this one, is that for me, seeing a black man in a winter coat is strange. I, there's a voice inside of me that goes, Black people don't wear coats. Why would a black person that's, that's foreign to them. Why why might I think that? Hey, Martin? No, it has nothing to do with the hoodie. It's not the hoodie.
1: Because right, usually advertising of winter coats will show you white people wear winter coats and so you've never associated with a black person wearing?: a winter Right,
0: coat? this This has to do with my upbringing. I grew up in rural Iowa in the southwest corner. And I never even touched black skin until I was in college. right? I never knew or talked to anyone. And I grew up in a, in a very a friendly, friendly uh, part of the world. Um, I'm from, unfortunately, the same hometown as Joni Ernst. <laughs> it's a great sense so of shame, but I'm from Red Oak. Um, she's four years younger than me. I know her family. Um, I was very, very upset when she mentioned my hometown on, the, on uh, the, the Tea Party response to the State of the Union address. But that's my own baggage. I've got to work that out. But I grew up in this place where, for me, uh, the depiction of black people that I grew up with was, was that black people are from Africa. They are from tropical places. They don't belong in northern regions. They're either from the south, where it's warm all the time, or they're from Africa, where it's warm all the time. And so for, for me, as a Midwestern uh, boy growing up, seeing a black person with a coat on was out of place. Because black people are not from places where you need a coat. They're from somewhere else. They might be there, but it's kind of an affect. It's kind of a necessity, but it doesn't look right. And you should be very puzzled right now <laughs> looking at me. But I want to tell you that this, this, is, a, this is something that has been that I never ever noticed for the longest, longest time that I thought that this looked strange. It has nothing to do with trayvon Martin, <coughs> but wh- where did I get that idea that black people are tropical, that black people are from that place, and that their place is that place, that they may be here in northern areas, they might be in places where you cope, but that 's not their natural state that 's some of the sort the, of the, the messages that, that I grew up with. Uh, in my particular part of the world that influenced the way I saw blackness, black people, black skin, how I interpreted that. And and that example might be extreme, and you could call call me a racist if you want. No one was, I never had KKK in my town. In fact, that kind of racism is actually not what I'm talking about at all. I'm not worried about the KKK. The KKK is a virtually powerless group of people. (coughs) White people like to think that the problem is with the KKK. But actually, that's a very convenient thing that white people do in order to make sure that they say that the problem is not with us northern educated middle folk class like me, who is super friendly. And yet, what I want to stress in this talk is that there are things about me and the way I was raised and things that have come as a cultural package that have nothing to do with American History Acts or radical racism, but have very much to do with the way that I see black people. That was, has, been very, has gone under the radar for much of my life, and I'm finished with it. I'm intolerant of it. Still, it's there. Three days ago, I had that, had that thought. But, I'm, but at least I can hear it now. What I want to do is vocalize that to you guys, so that maybe you, not that I'm blaming you. See, this is the thing. It's not about blaming people. Like, you're, if you think this thought, you're a racist. So the, so the solution is, is tell yourself you don't think this thought. The answer is actually to start asking yourself, what do I think when I see black? What does it mean f- well, as a white person? And I am really speaking to white people in this talk. Right? What does it mean to be white and see blackness? And what are our associations with that? And that, that we have to go back. Um, in a way, I grew up w- thinking there were two worlds. There was a white world and there was a black world. Um, there was white culture for white people and black culture for black people. Um, and that those two things really didn't mix. And if you saw people in one or the other, that that was out of place. <coughs> so I never listened to hip-hop and rap early stuff in the 90s because. I thought that was inappropriate for me as a white person to enjoy black music. I had to listen to white music. I'm white, so I listen to, you know, Kraftwerk and uh, electronica and you know Daft Punk and all this stuff like cuz they're white. That's white music. Right? But black people listen to black music and white people listen to, and so if a white person liked black music, I was like you're that's not for you. In the same way I would think the other thing, if black people like white music, I'd be like, "Wow, what why do you what do you see in that? That's not your music." Right? Was my, that was my cultural upbringing. Um, and that's what's what happened. So there are these other Americans. And I kind of touched on these. They're, they have another home. Black people are tropical. They have another culture that's different than mine. They have different dance. They have different music. They have a different history, different literature. There's black literature, and then there's other literature. There's black things, and then the, the, there's other things. right? These are these two worlds. And also, the other idea that there are another race, that there are races in the world, and black people are one of those races, right? And just like I am a race, they are a race, too. I, I could go off on that particular one quite a lot, because I have a l- I'm still working out this idea of whether or not there is such a thing as race. I'm beginning to think more and more that actually, this is one of the most unhelpful constructs we have in the way we talk about what it means to be human when we fit people into races, because we cannot Uh, resist the temptation to make them into a hierarchy. Once we say that one is a race and another, we just instantly compare and assess and which is better and which is higher and which is lower. And there's a grand history in European tradition of, of ranking races of higher to lower. And so I think this word is lost to us. I think we have to find a new way of talking about difference without talking about race, because race has been so infected in Western culture that we cannot talk about race without uh, making evaluations about greater or lesser or hierarchy. And, and so I think this, 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 that word is lost to me. But I've also been accused, and rightly so, by saying, well, that's easy for you as a white person to not talk about race and just pretend everything is equal. But you leave the structure in place that's just another way of you of burying the sort of the problem of, of what this legacy has done to particular groups of people in this country. So you can't just pretend that race doesn't exist, because that, by, by, <laughs> that's like saying you're colorblind. I don't see color. That's a lie, too. That's the trap. That's kind of the, 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 the bind I find myself in when I don't want to acknowledge the structure of racism by referring to people as different races, but then I don't acknowledge the structural problems that racism has caused and that we still live in. Just by not using that term race does not mean that we uh, erase racism. And in fact, it is the most effective way of continuing racism for us not to talk about race. And that's the one thing that white people don't want to do. We don't want to talk about race or racism or the structures that undergird a system which is designed to put people like me into power, which it's done, actually. Again, the irony is not lost on me. Um, so what I want to look at is, is I want to look at a few things that have been coming out. There's been a lot of information that's been coming out in the last couple of years about the, this, started, uh, this all started with the um, uh, implicit association test, which was an online test. Anybody heard of this put out by Harvard University? Yeah, Colin, you've heard of it? Yeah, yeah it was, this, this really did shake a lot of people up. This came out about four years ago, four or five years ago. It's still online. You can still find it if you want. Um, but it was the idea that that, there is, that we have implicit favoritisms um, that we are unconscious of and that operate underneath our consciousness. And that I remember taking the exam for the first time. And, you, and basically what you do is you, it's an association between faces. And you can do this with all sorts of things. But the one that really put them on the map was the idea of, of they would show black faces and then have associations with positive words and negative words, white faces, positive words and negative words. And you would click a, a button, a keystroke, when you chose, you were told to associate black faces in one of the rounds with positive words, and then you'd have black faces and negative words, and you had to hit the right word to, depending on what you were told to do. What they found was that uh, if you were white, by and large, and this is pretty much true for everybody I've ever seen, you're much quicker to hit the key when you're told to associate a good positive word with a white face. And it's mu- you take longer. This is measured in milliseconds, right? for you to hit a, a key to associate a black face with a positive word. It's like you, your brain has to think longer in order to make that association. And you're more apt to make mistakes, to actually hit the negative word even though you're supposed to hit the positive word. And, so, and it's, the other thing is true too. People are more apt to hit the negative word when they see a black face, and it takes them longer to associate a, a negative word with a white face. Those milliseconds indicate huge spans of time on a neurological level at the speed that that we're thinking at. And so these findings started to come out and bubble out a couple of years ago and it was shocking to people because people who did not, would not have ever called themselves racist discovered that that they took the test and there's tens of thousands of people that have done it, that they're actually had these associations underneath, underneath uh, that were sort of operating underneath their conscious level. It's sobering, right? It's very sobering. I remember taking the test like three or four times, until I got a preference, a moderate preference for black, for African-American faces. In what I was doing, and I, what I did, and what th- maybe something we talk about at the end of this talk, is that what I was doing was trying to reprogram my mind so that when I saw a black face, I could associate positive words for it as easily as I could negative, as opposed to what it was told me to do. right? trying to make conscious what, what, what I discovered was unconscious bias. Um, that, th- there are a lot of things that have been coming out with this. Um, hey, Noreen. So, oh, I don't want to go there. I'm going to show you, this here, a couple of, I just pulled these up here. Um, this is the one, this, there is a recent, oh boy, this is really small, sorry. Let me see if I can make this bigger. Slate.com always has tiny text. They, they're fine. Every time you pull up a story on Slate, it's tiny. But this is a story. A recent study shows that people, including medical personnel, assume black people feel less pain This was a, um, than white people. This was a study, very interesting, which is the idea that, that white people tend to think of black people as superhuman. Uh, and, and when they mean superhuman, they, they tend to think they did the implicit association test, but with like words like magical words or superpowers or, or, un, or unusual strength that white people tended to see black people as having more strength, having more powers, magical powers, more superpowers than white people. And the, the, the researchers said, you know, it sounds like a good thing, right? Like you think that they're superhuman, like this is a good thing. But actually the flip side of it is, and the thing that's really more important is that they also believe that black people are less sensitive to pain than white people. And they, when they did this study with medical personnel, they found out that they, they would attribute, they would be less likely to, to attribute pain in the same level as, as when they're dealing with white patients. This is a, this has a legacy in, in our history, and we'll talk about it, that goes back to the slave era when slave owners and, and white people thought that black people could endure more pain and that that's the way they were built. It's part of that whole package about that black people were built to be slaves. And so part of that package is that they were stronger than white people and they were tougher and they were less sensitive to pain. Now, as you translate that into the sort of uh, post formal slavery type of situation, that still hangs on in this sort of unconscious level that we see uh, black people as superhuman, with superpowers that are not like us. And the important thing is, is that. What, what, what we're continuing to do and things like this are starting to show is that we don't, white people don't see black people as the same as us. They see them as a different kind of person, a different kind of people. We could debate about whether they think of them subhuman or what, but I'm, being, I'm trying to be neutral by saying that they're different. And that difference is significant. On the same principle that, that we abolish segregation in schools, separate but equal, I don't think that we're capable as human beings of actually understanding separate but equal. I don't think there is such a thing. We, we can't, I don't, I think this is beyond us. We like to think that we could do separate but equal, but <laughs> I don't think we can do it. And, and so, there, and, and I don't think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a solution to that. It's not a shortcoming, it's actually a, a way that we could actually do better because actually the only way we can ever be equal is when we're not separate. And we'll come, at, we'll come back to that later. So, the, in, the another one that came out recently, this is the American Psychological Association, uh, March 6th of 2014, this last year, <coughs> black boys viewed as older, less innocent than whites research finds. Mm-hmm. Right, and this was talking to police officers um, who tended again to given pictures of black people and white people, and boys in this case, they tended to overestimate pretty significantly, the age of black men, black boys. So they would always think that black boys were older than they actually were, much more so than when, when, when they were looking at white people. Um, and, and less innocent, that they were more likely to see a black face and see guilt and judge the guilt of a person than, than, uh, than white people. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that's starting to come out. This isn't just anecdotal anymore. This is pointing to something that is endemic. Something that is woven into our culture, um, and this sort of thing, when you when you start pairing this stuff together, when you start looking at the way in which this is sort of um, exists across the board, it becomes y- y- you start to understand the sort of the the extent of this, of how pervasive this idea is. This is also true, by the way, uh, for black officers, right? This this same this same idea is true for officers across the board. They didn't find um, that, that there was a significant difference between uh, black officers and white officers, which tells me that it's, this is more systemic than even people realize, than, than anyone realizes. So this is, this is how sort of uh, subterranean this sort of stuff is. And this is the kind of stuff that's starting to come to light and make people ask questions, why is that? That's the question that I ask. Wh- where did we get this? Where does this come from? Um, this is another one here. This is from ProPublica. Um, this came out October. Um, they did, they're, they're doing a lot more work into this. What we're finding out is that police um, units across the board don't keep track of a lot uh, when it comes to police brutality. They don't keep the numbers about their shootings. They don't, uh, they're not public. Um, they're not even accessible. There's no database that shows how many t- uh, times police shoot other people and who they shoot and why. We don't keep track of these things. And people are starting to ask, why don't we keep track of these things? And they're finding out that they're because there's no interest in keeping track of these things. Um, this is another one that came out, uh, a ProPublica analysis of killings by police show outsized risk for young black males. For, people, for many people, this is like not news. For pe- many people, this is not news. But it's, what it's coming is that the numbers are starting to come in the science behind what a lot of people already feel to be true are starting to come in. And these are harder to argue with than individual um, uh, stories about particular police officers, which we can say, well, that's just a bad cop. He's a bad cop. This is a bad person. We need to punish that person and then get rid of him. It's n- the problem's not the system. The problem is the, the bad apple. These sorts of studies are starting to show that it's actually not about the particular individuals involved. This is much deeper than that. Um, Which comes back to Darren Wilson that idea like why did he see a demon and it also starts to shine light on the fact of why he was not um, Why he was not um, Why the grand jury chose not to try him? Right this is this all starts these are pieces of a puzzle which start fitting together Um, So let me go back to my Presentation So whoopsie So you have, the, they, they're older than they look. They have magical powers. They're less sensitive to pain. Um, and then also, there's, there's something that came out that was in the 1990s. Um, actually, Brian Stevenson, how many were you at that talk? A lot of you? Yeah, good. He made reference to this well in the 1990s, this phenomenon called the super predator, um, which was this movement, this scare in the early 1990s of this idea that there are people out there, young people, young boys of color, uh, who are different from everyone else that they commit crimes at a level that that is beyond our understanding that they are machines they are called predators That's a very very uh, interesting and telling choice of words not even predators, but super predators And and w- this was a huge um, Scare within the American public there were studies that came out and talked about these young boys who just all they wanted to do was destroy they had no purpose. They had no meaning. You couldn't figure it out. You couldn't rehabilitate them. There was nothing behind that except that they were different from us. All, all, all the language is, is um, flirts with going outside of, of what we consider to be human. Uh, you know, go, it, goes be, it, it kind of flirts with going outside of that, that they are predators as though they are not, nothing that we could ever reason with. The system can't take care of them, and the only way we can contain this problem is by putting them behind bars. That's the only way. So that, that, is got, that has really crumbled in the, in the, in the, in the t- but it really took off for uh, several years, this idea of the super predator. And it still lurks in there. But again, it, for me, the question goes deeper of where did that idea come? Where is the room within the way we think about people of color that we would be able to accept as a culture the idea that there are, are super predators out there? That we could look at a scientist and who tells us there are these super predators, we are, they are coming to fore and they're coming out of the cities and they're, they're coming after us and we all go, oh my God, we have to do something. Instead of saying, what you're saying is nonsense because that's, that's not human, there's room in, in white culture and white America to allow for that kind of language to, to exist. And I, you know, I wasn't paying attention much in the 90s, because all the 90s are lost to me, because my first daughter was born in 1990, and my last was born in 1997. And I'll tell you, I know nothing of the music. I know nothing of the culture. I didn't watch TV. I never watched any movies. The whole decade is gone. I remember vaguely, I didn't watch one minute of the war uh, in Iraq, the, the, the desert storm. Nothing. I missed the Rwandan genocide. I missed everything in the 90s. So. A lot of what I do actually is talking about the 90s, which is kind of ironic. So that's a big hole. So, but I remember something about that. But I was off the map. I was off the grid. But I do uh, now that I go back and I look at it and I look at what how we reacted. This was all part of um, really a, a, an unbroken line that goes back quite quite far. Um, so the c- conclusion that I came away with certainly when I look at this face. I still have to fight that, that idea that this is a dangerous, distant, and different kind of person. To look at that young black man and see danger is something that everything in my culture encouraged me to do. Everything in my culture encouraged me to see danger there in that face. And so this is where I think we as a country are starting, maybe for the, I think we're at not the first time, but this is one of those turning point moments, I think, that we have an opportunity to maybe go forward faster than we have in the past, to really, uh, to really leverage this insight, this sort of moment of, of realization that some people are saying race relations are getting worse in this country. Look, it's deteriorating. Ever since Obama took office, things have gone downhill. Look at all these things. Look at Tamir Rice. Look at Ferguson. Look at Staten Island. Look at all Brooklyn. Look at all these shootings. Look, everything's terrible. But in fact, what I think is happening, what I would say that this is a, this is part of what we, the work we should have been doing a hundred years ago. Right? This is part of the work. This realization of white people, of how bad it is, is not a surprise to anyone of color. It's a surprise to us because we've been <laughs> living in a world where we just thought that that was taken care of. But it's not a surprise to anyone else. The only people who are shocked are white people. M- look around, listen to the commentators, everyone who's black will say, Wait. This is not new. This is not a new thing. And everyone who's white saying, "Look, ah, oh, the sky's falling. Oh my God, we're d- d- look at w- race relations are going to hell in a handbasket." It's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty reliable. And I and I I'm part of that narrative too, or at least I would like to say that I used to be, but I still have the same brain. I still ha- then, and it needs some work. So then the idea is, where does that come from? So the roots of our fear. When I say I'm playing off the idea of roots, right? Because roots—that's the cover for Alex Haley's *Root*. That's uh, that's our protagonist, Kunta Kinte. Um, this is the, what I grew up in. In the '70s, we all watched this. We gather around the TV. This was a big event in my family. And I remember watching this show. And it was—it was, you know, it was during the '70s. It was during civil rights. It was—it was—it shook uh, our culture. But it, in a way, it. It didn't do a lot when it came to understanding where. It, it again, did that thing where it demonized demonized the South. um, It demonized slave owners. I grew up thinking that the whole problem with racism was in the South. Um, I knew nothing about the housing uh, problems in the North, about Chicago, about racism, about the way that the North expressed its Jim Crow laws, about the way that the North expressed um, its uh, a racial bias. It was all about the South. And of course, again, very convenient for most of the country to blame it on that period, blame it on those slave owners, blame it on those individuals. But what it didn't do necessarily was made all Americans take a look at where we were at that time. It made us think that we had a terrible past. And the best thing for us to do really is then just cover it up, just cover it up or contain it. It was slaves. It was slavery, and thank God for you know, Abraham Lincoln, and he ended that. And whew, we dodged a bullet there. You know, we're we're done with that. But in fact, what I say when I say the roots of our fear, and when I say our fear, I'm talking about white people. That slavery is actually the roots of our fear, from a white perspective. Our fear of the of Africans, the fear of slavery, the fear of what slavery came to mean for white people. And and I think that sometimes we. Uh, tend to distance ourselves, especially for someone who's from the North, like myself, I know that I spent most of my life thinking that that was the problem. I used to show American History X in my, in my, uh, for my ACS students, and I thought it was a fantastic movie, and it, and it is in some ways, but again, it plays into that same idea that the problem of racism is with racists, is with KKK, is with uh, white supremacists, and that if we can get rid of those people and reform them, have anybody, everybody seen American History X? A few people? If you can reform them, about, it's about how a, a white supremacist becomes reformed and t- saves his brother from the same trap that he was in, and blah blah. It's it's a it's a good movie. It's interesting, and Ed Norton is fantastic in it. But the message is that the problem is with racists, not not something I think that we're starting to deal with now in this country, which is that we're dealing with a structure that is designed to make sure that people of color don't go too far, and that they and that to maintain the privilege that white people have is premised on the existence of certain uh, ways of keeping black people in certain areas, keeping them away from certain um, uh, access to privilege, access to education, access to real estate, access to uh, voting, um, uh, access to um, being that the same status uh, that the rest of Americans have, white Americans. And so the idea is that if they are not in that place, they will overtake us. And this goes back to the roots, the roots of our fear is, is very much in that. Which is to say that the goal, we all have heard of Jim Crow laws. Um, what I'm beginning, what I've come to understand now, again, I was always taught Jim Crow is only in the South, and that it was a long time ago, and now it's over. I was born in 1965 in March. That was the same year as the Voting Rights um, Act was passed. And so that was, that was done. We were finished with that. But what I'm realizing is that there, there are different kinds of Jim Crow, that the goal of Jim Crow is to separate and neutralize. That can happen in many different ways. It can happen through what we know as Jim Crow laws of the South, where they're very blatant, they're big signs, um, everything is out in the open, there's no um, shame, it's just blatant. And then there are other kinds of Jim Crow that are more um, subterranean, they're they're more covert, Uh, they're they're more difficult to, to to see because, but they have the same effect, which is to separate and neutralize. Um, and, and stop black people from getting the same access that white people have, um, access to privilege, access to opportunity. Um, and so we have southern versions, we have northern versions, and you could do, I'm not going to get too, too much on this, but the way segregation was uh, uh, expressed in the north through housing was far more aggressive uh, than it was in the south. Um, there are arguments to be made that, that Jim Crow in the north was way more effective in, um, in suppressing uh, black people from getting the kind of access that white people had, um, and that it was far more difficult to to understand it and to point to in the North because it was so um, implicit, and therefore it was more effective, and therefore, uh, therefore, the irony is is that black people who fled the South to get away from Jim Crow and came to the North actually, in some ways, had it worse than they did in uh, in the in the South, and so that. Sort of understanding the dynamics of that is, is really important. And that we also actually have a modern form of, of Jim Crow. Anybody who's read Michelle Alexander and who knows uh, Michael um, uh, Stevenson, um, oh, Brian Stevenson, know the kind of work that he's doing to really lift the lid on something that is, uh, that is bigger than just the North and the South, but has to do with the way that we treat um, the felony system in this country and the court system and how it is. Um, designed to express the goals of Jim Crow, but within a system that is buried underneath um, and out of sight and out of scrutiny for most Americans because it is embedded in the judicial system, which we all trust uh, without, without question for the most part. And that the more these studies are showing, the more they're looking at the patterns of judges, the more we're looking at how felony laws are are implemented in states and how they're linked to voting rights and how they're linked to access to um, benefits and education and jobs and housing and all of these things in the way voting rights uh, legislation, which is trying to be passed through in many states, have the same goal to disenfranchise black people from voting, which is the most effective way of keeping them separate and neutralized is by keeping them from voting, because there's no way in our culture, in our system, of getting what you need unless you have representation in government. And so that, that's the way in which this is working on, on a, modern, a modern way now, which is to say that we are still in the midst of the civil rights movement in a very real way. This is not a chapter which has ever been closed uh, for us. We have made, there are times where we progressed faster in some ways than others, and there are times where we move backwards. And there are times where you know it waxes and wanes and moves in a in a in a very different way, and so that that under understanding that is really huge. So some of the some of the uh, frames for what when we think of this what I call the slave frame, which is still very much a part of that, um, yeah, uh, is that that these are some of the sort of the tropes that we that that uh, Europeans had about Africans not just Americans, but also Europeans as well. This is part of our colonial history, but European colonial history within Africa, but also how that was expressed in our particular form of uh, colonialism where instead of taking the land and uh, everything and, and taking the land from, from um, taking what's under the ground, which is what European colonial powers did in Africa, Americans, we took what was above the ground and, and brought it to our country, right? And so the ways in which that, uh, so Africans are happier uh, when they're ignorant, they don't need education, they're a flight risk, so they have to be contained, Uh, they're in need of civilization. And when I put that in quotes, I mean, this is Western civilization, this includes um, uh, political structures. This includes religion. This includes society. This includes all of the ways that we think that we are civilized. And Western people have a very distinct way. We have a very distinct way of thinking what qualifies as civilization. And it's a pretty narrow band of, of the human experience. When you think about it, we have a very narrow band of understanding. It's mostly about technology and weaponry, infrastructure and weaponry. That's usually what we think of as education or and uh, as civilization. But you know, we don't. It's not like. Uh, the quality of our relationships. It's not about family. It's not about how we negotiate with our enemies. Uh, it's not ha- you know we don't count that as civilization. We have a very particular way to do that. But anyway, that's another story as well. Also, that, that black people are not family oriented. That's how you can take their children from them. They uh, that's why you th- and they won't. You know that's not a big deal to them. This this still lives very much today. Um, uh, within the way we think about um, the, the black experience in this country. That they're built to work and that they're less complex. They're a simpler kind of human being. This was a prevalent idea in the, in the way we thought about that. And so by us taking these people and bringing them to our country, we were doing them a favor. We were exposing them to civilization. We were giving them the benefits of being in America. And you can still find this thinking. I've heard this, I've heard this on, uh, on politicians who aren't necessarily crazy, you know, David Duke, uh, KKK types to say, hey, listen, if you look at slavery all in the, all in all, it's been better for them than to stay in Africa. Yeah, it was a bad for a while, but look, they got to be Americans. I mean, that's, I've heard that, like said without guile. Just like, honestly, like, hey, listen, it was a tough road, but look, hey, you get to be American. That, that idea is, is is incredibly um, difficult to r- unpack and root out, but it's part of a legacy. It's connected very much to that to that frame. Now, the reason I say "frame um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this actually. Um, No. Actually, I'm going to move on. I might come back to this one. This is about sort of the the way that we as Europeans and our European culture sought to legitimize our power over this particular people and the way that we sort of made it as if this is the best thing that we could do for them. Um, so we created, listen, I'm doing it anyway, so we created creation myths that had white people to be more divine than black people. We have a hierarchy, a sort of like where lighter is better than darker, and so light skin is more divine because God is light. And so we have these sort of very medieval ideas um, that, that, that create the, uh, the feeling, the illusion, the conviction that white people are closer to God, and therefore we have sort of um, status that is divinely ordained. Uh, in us. And so we have to maintain this control um, of these people so we can maintain this hierarchy. But it's also about power, too. Um, And it's also about uh, fear as well. This was especially true. And I still think we live, this is part of the fear, which is what I'm kind of coming back to, is that idea that I think Americans still, what's one of the most enduring um, uh, stereotypes about black people is that they're angry. They're angry at us for slavery. And so we, don't want to talk about slavery because if we talk about that it will get them mad and so we and then they will want revenge because there is an under uh, there there is guilt in white culture about slavery the way we've dealt with that guilt is by repressing it pushing it down pushing it away as though we don't have any link to it that's a way that, that, uh, that our culture has dealt with that guilt. Not all cultures deal with that guilt in the same way, but Americans have definitely d- uh, tried to manage that guilt of slavery, which is very telling, because if they were so convinced, if we were so convinced as Europeans that this was the right thing, that we were ordained to do this, then why would we feel guilty and shameful about it? Why would we worry about black people who are wanting to get away and keeping them, you know, like they're going to get angry and they're going to come after us and kill us? That's an interesting question. Because I never really, and because I don't think we really believed it. Because I think there was something profound in us that when you look into the eyes of another person, you see that person as another person. And I think part of the reason for the violence that we saw within slave culture was that people knew that these were other people. And that, that recognition that this was wrong at an elemental level created the need for more violence to overcome that sense of shame and guilt. And so uh, you often see this in genocides, I think, as well, which is why I think babies and women are more brutalized in genocide than men, because of the feeling that there is a sense of an awareness that there's something elementally, fundamentally wrong about what's going on. So you have to compensate for that sense of guilt and shame with violence, with, because that is a much more powerful emotion. And so the, the violence in slave culture, I think, is an indication of the deep shame that we felt. And in the wake of, of, of slavery, sort of the way that we've dealt with that shame is to push it down. And white people have done this very successfully in this country. And And so have I, by being complicit, by allowing this, by not knowing my history, by not knowing what it means to be white, to not understanding my privilege, to not doing the work of what every white person in this country should do is to find out what your role is in this system. And then you decide whether you want to play or not. It's too easy for white people to just go along with it and just tell themselves that it's all good, because that's what the system wants you to do. It's designed for you to never have to ask whether, what, who's paying for this. That's, that's the beauty. That's the, that is, No one else has done it like America when it comes to that kind of stuff. It's quite impressive in, in kind of a sick way. So. Um, but that fear is, is where I want to sort of switch over to the neuroscience of this. And I want to tell you, I gotta t- I'm humbled here. The neuroscience is moving so fast on this kind of stuff. We are in a balloon of information about the brain. The fMRI has just knocked it out of the park. We are, and it's really exciting. I mean, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, and if you want to like be involved in like brain, like get in on this, because this is, we're only like 20 Less than 20 years with an fMRI. Is that right, my nursing? 20 years, maybe less, with an fMRI? Less. This is inc- we can actually look at the brain in real time and see what is firing, with, and really to see how we think. And this is, this is revolutionizing uh, our understanding of what it means to be human. I, I'm done with the philosophers. I want to talk to neuroscientists. The philosophers are boring. That's like they don't know squat. The people who are asking the most Im- important existential questions right now are neuroscientists. They are the people, they don't even know they're asking it sometimes. They're just doing their work like good scientists, but they are creating questions that w- nobody knows how to answer. So I'm, I'm very humble in this and I realize that I'm, I'm behind on this. I'm, I just had a student who I had in my class a couple uh, years ago who sent me like these two new, she's like two new uh, articles on the amygdala, which i what I'm talk about and I, you know, I, I can barely keep up. I mean, I love, I, but I'm very, very interested in this. I do want to talk about uh, what I know. I'm just saying this. Like, I'm provisional. I could be out of date, like, right, like 10 minutes ago. But I, so we have a long way to go. The, the Part of the brain that I'm most interested in when it comes to fear, when it comes to perception, when it comes to understanding what people see and that link between perception and emotion, is really in this part of the, the second tier of the brain and the limbic system, especially in the amygdala. I mean, if we get down here in the spinal cord, like, that is a very deep part of that. This is our cortical area. This is the part that we usually think of as our brain. What we're understanding in neuroscience is that this part of the brain is far more involved in our everyday life than we thought. We used to think that this is where reason is, and reason's up here, and this is where our higher thinking is, and this is where we make decisions, and this is how we live, and this sort of takes care of our body, and sort of keeps our heart beating and regulates our temperature, and now we're starting to realize that no, this stuff is all connected. And that when it comes to actually our understanding of what reason is, our understanding of how we make decisions is far, far less about this, and far more about this. And the amygdala is at a particular place that in the body that is involved with the hypothalamus to, um, make really quick decisions about whether or not information is worth um, well it values information this is what i 'm picking up in a way, the amygdala is like a storage unit it can create fear memories, but in a way that I used to think that, and I'm actually pushing away from that now. What I I think we're realizing is that the amygdala is actually more like a sending station. It's more like something that makes a decision about what to do with a piece of information, whether or not to suppress it, whether or not to just push it away because it's not important, or whether or not to amplify it. The amygdala is particularly good when it comes to fear stimulus. In in judging and assessing whether or not an external stimulus should be valued as a fear uh, stimulus or stimuli. Because that's incredibly important if we don't know what to be scared of. This is a very deep part of our our brain, which is very, very useful. Because if you don't understand what you need to be scared of, you won't be able to react fast enough to actually save your own life. So the amygdala is a way of, um, when we think of decisions, we think that the stimulus comes in here, we assess it up in the cortical regions, and then we make a rational decision about what to do with it. So, neuroscience is telling us that that's actually the other way around. So uh, what I say in class, and, and this was, I remember when I said it was like right? Like, we don't, we, don't, we don't cry because we're sad. We're sad because we're crying, which is to say that our body reacts to things first before we're even really aware of that. And what we do, our most of our job is interpreting how our body is feeling and then applying value, narrative, um, emotional qualities to that stimulus, and then say, I'm, I'm sad. But we don't say, I'm sad, and then we start to cry. From a neurological standpoint, we feel, we feel that, and our body starts acting like we're sad, and then we say, why am I feeling this? Oh, it must be that relationship scene. It must be the notebook that I'm watching. That's why I'm crying, because I'm watching the notebook. Oh, God, this is sad. But, you know, but it happens so f- quickly and underneath the surface that we think we're crying because we're remembering when, you know, a, a time in our life, or no, we're remembering the last time we saw the notebook. I mean, like, that's, what, that's why we're crying. But it's, a, it's actually not that. And the amygdala is involved in that, especially when it comes to fear. It's a very valuable part of the brain that tells you whether or not to, to act quickly. And it, re- and it has certain ways, that in, in particular, it has effects on the way that we perceive the external world. Um, this has to go, in there is this incredible dance with uh, ACTH and cortisol. Cortisol, for just for general purposes, is, is what we usually call stress. It's a stress hormone. It's much more complex than that, though, because cortisol is actually is really, really important for us to have. It's not like we don't want cortisol, like we need to have cortisol. but. In in big measures, cortisol is that stuff that triggers adrenaline, Cortisol is that stuff that, that tells the body to be scared, that prepares the body to react with that fight <coughs> or flight sort of idea that where you get this rush, where you see things differently, that's that the stuff that adrenaline, it makes you see tunnel vision, it makes you uh, incredibly, it sends blood, amazing amounts of blood to your big muscles to be ready to go. It increases your heart rate. I mean, it's all this stuff which prepares you. And you don't have to think about that. That's why when I do that, you don't have to think about whether that was loud. You, your body reacted to that immediately. That's an example of, of the amygdala taking something and just startling you out of nowhere. I'm sorry I did that, but, <laughs> but it is a good way because that feeling, that rush, that, that's, that's your body being incredibly efficient, incredibly efficient. It's an incredibly good thing, but it has effects. It has effects. One of the things I, I say that, uh, that I talk about in class, especially when we're talking about perception, about when I'm trying to bring this back quickly, is, is that this changes the way you see the world. When you are in a state, uh, when, you are, when you have cortisol in you, when you are in a state of this, when your body is telling you that this is, impor- that this is scary, you see the world differently than you, than you do before. And, and this, is what a, this is what accounts for Darren Wilson and his thing like, I felt like a little child with a monster coming at me. I saw the face of a demon. This is why I believe him when he said that. Because I believe that neurologically, he did see the face of a demon, whatever that means to him. That something triggered in him the reaction that he, and if you ever, st- I, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you see the shooting of Tamir Rice in the park, has anyone seen that? This is where the little boy was, had a, pl- a play gun. This is again 2005. Um, let me see if that's the next one. Yeah, these are all in 2005. These we have Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner, Staten Island, uh, Akai Gurley, Brooklyn, the guy who was shot in a Brooklyn stairwell uh, and and he was unarmed by a police officer, Trayvon Martin uh, by by Zimmerman in uh, Miami, Florida, and Tamir Rice in Cleveland Park. Um, You see that what happens is that when they pull up in the car, Tamir Rice who's 13, he's just a kid, he's got a toy gun, they have like surveillance for him like for the last two hours and he's playing around, his sister's there and he's in a park and he's kind of playing toy, shootout, right, and when the police car pulls up on the lawn, off the thing, pull up right beside him, he just takes the gun up like this. The policeman within a split second pulls and shoots him. That's it. And he goes down. It, it happens within a second, the whole interaction, incredibly fast. So that sort of reaction of the, and he wasn't tried either, right, these police officers are not tried. They're, they are performing their duties as prescribed. There's nothing in the law that makes that illegal because when that these police officers, and I'm only saying police officers because they're the people who are involved in these, but that fear that they have, that association that they have when they see a black face, there is a lot of things going on that, are that, that, that cause that reaction for their amygdala to send, uh, uh, to send and value that to be a, a source of threat and fear, which will then send their body into a fight or flight scenario where they fear them more than they would if they see a white face. So this is the pairing that I see in between the sort of the legacy of slavery and the way our culture has feared blacks, blackness, feared for uh, them for retribution for what we did in slavery, but also feared them because they're unknown, feared them because we keep them distant from us, because you, you fear things that you don't know. And we've kept black people at a distance from us, predominantly in white society, and so we fear those things. And how that reacts on a neurological level to create scenarios where, to see a black face is to feel like pulling your gun, or to see the face of a demon, or to see danger when there's nothing there, or to see a gun and think that it's real even though it's play. Whereas if you saw a white face, that those associations of fear and danger, which are not woven into our culture as much, don't, wouldn't play on, the, on their body and the interpretation of their brains in the same way that it operates on these police officers. Which is to say, I don't blame them for what they did because they were reacting to stimuli that were coming into their brains. And, but they are a product of our system. They are a product of, this, of our culture, which has uh, sort of subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, uh, told us that black men, black people are dangerous. They have superpowers. They're insensitive to pain. They have more muscles than us. They don't, you know, they don't value what we value. They don't value life as much as us. Right? And so they, are, they create an otherness for white Americans that makes them difficult to, uh, to, to, to empathize in the same way. Even to this day, white people are uncomfortable talking about race with their, with their black friends. Even their black friends, they don't want to talk about this. And there are plenty of studies that show this. Um, white parents don't want to talk to their white children about racism or race. They don't want their children to see race. And uh, there have been some r- really interesting studies about they do these things in the schools where they have parents of young children. And they have a um, they ask them to take home uh, sort of homework. And they talk about, to talk about racism and racial categories and how we stereotype. And what they found is that a lot of the white parents bowed out of the, of the they, they said, we don't want to be involved with this study. We don't want to do this because we don't want to teach our children that people are different. We don't want them to see blackness. We don't want to do that, so we're, because that would be turning them into racists. Whereas black families were like, like, yeah, we talk about this all the time. This is not hard. We, we talk about this all the time. That's fine. No, no black families pulled out of it, but a lot of the white families did. And the reasons were is they thought that they were ter- teaching their children to be um, racist by, acknowledge- by acknowledging this difference in appearance. Right? And, that, and that's really, that's the new, that's the great, actually, this is the f- new frontier, is you guys, actually, with your families, and I hope you all have families, I don't care how you get the children, but I hope you all have families, and that you raise them a- in a way that, that you don't do what was done to me, which is never, never talk about race as though that was the solution to the problem. That's how artfully this whole system has been set up, is that the less you talk about race, the more you perpetuate racism. That's the new gold standard for us. The less you talk about race, the more you perpetuate a racial system which, which gives privilege to those people who have the right color skin, and in my case, the right gender, as well. I mean, this goes like, I'm, I'm white, I'm married, I'm educated, I'm male, I'm straight, um, I, I have a job. I mean, every possible way you could ever, ever come up with, I am a perpetrator. My, that is the tradition that my, I mean my family bought, bought land from the government on the Homestead Act out in western Nebraska. They bought land that was stolen from Native Americans. And that's where we settled. That's where I'm from. So I mean like, <laughs> it's like I can't, there's no way that I'm like a persecuted person by any, any stance. So that's why I'm the poster child for white privilege. That, that's why I tell you that story at the beginning, like I'm a paradigm. Not a paragon, but a paradigm. I'm a paradigm, because in every way I was raised, I'm the one who is, should not be talking about this. I'm the one who's the traitor, because I'm not supposed to talk about this. Because if I talk about this, then I might have to sacrifice some of my privilege and power. But I want to sacrifice some of my privilege and power, because I'm not happy. This is what p- most white people don't talk about, is it's not really fun to be, to live scared. It's not that fun. Actually, You have to put a lot of stuff away, you have to pack a lot of stuff down, you have to do a lot of denying. So how we do this, um, sort of the way forward on this is like managing managing guilt. This is what white people talk about. Oh, I just feel guilty. Black people talk about racism. They just want us to feel guilty, right? Mm, I think that's part of it, actually. <laughs> I think we need to move through that cloud. Uh, I think embracing that guilt is, is part of it. You don't stay there, for goodness sake. You move. You move with it, but you learn how to move with it. But the biggest thing for me is taking the un out of unconscious. That is, to me, for my money, that is the biggest thing you can do. Is once you start to notice these things about how you're understanding how your brain works, about understanding how little you know about why you decide something, about how little you know about what you feel when you see certain stimuli. Understanding that and making that conscious, what is unconscious, is tremendously <coughs> empowering. That is, a, that is the biggest uh, thing that I can tell you, because if, you, if it's just operating under the, under the radar, you will believe that it's natural. You will believe that this is just <coughs> what it means to be alive. But if you are start to scrutinize these things, you can gain a tremendous amount of control over this. I'm not saying that the voices will never go away, because I told you, remember three days ago, I looked at somebody on there, it's like, wow, wow I just heard that voice. Black people shouldn't wear coats, right? But, you, but once you name that, once you get, then all of a sudden, you have, you have much more power than, than you have of this. Also, this is, again, this, I'm on the same page as Stevenson, too, this sort of dismantling fear through proximity. Like, stereotypes can only be maintained these stereotypes about what we think about black people and wh- what it means for a wh- white person to see black can only be dismantled if you are in proximity. Because it af- over when you're close to that, so ma- those stereotypes just fall away. Those fall away. And this is unprotected proximity. I'm talking about practicing unprotected proximity. Which is to say <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry nurses. Uh, which is to say don't <laughs> Don't, don't, protected proximity is where you're in crowds of other people where you can feel supported and just moving around like unprotected proximity is to make yourself vulnerable. And for white people, and I'm talking to you, white folks, is to be, is to be honest about, uh, about making yourself vulnerable. About talking about these things that you don't, that you think you're going to offend someone, you're going to offend them more if you don't talk. That's the most offensive thing you can do is pretend it doesn't exist. That's, that's freaking surreal to pretend it doesn't exist. So, and again, the last thing I want to end on is it's the system, not the individual. This is the thing that everybody gets mad at. The, they got mad at the policemen. They, the, um, they got mad at the grand jury. We all get mad at them for not doing it, but the, the fact is, is the grand jury was following the letter of the law. In every one of these cases, the grand jury was doing exactly what, what the law told them to do, what precedent told them to do, what history told them to do, what they were told to do by the courts. They did, there was this is not a breach of justice. So the problem is, is how we define justice in this country. So the problem is in the system. The problem is not the individuals. Insofar as we see these as problem cops that we have to get out of the system and get rid of them, the assumption is if we can get rid of the bad cops, we'll only have good cops. When the system itself is what we need to start examining. And, th- and, and frankly, this is what we're starting to do. This is what we're starting to do. We are starting to put task force. We're starting to scrutinize how we police. We're starting to scrutinize how we educate, how we do these things. Where are our cultural biases? That's incredibly important work. And, and so I think that's the really the frontier. That's the place um, that we can do the most. But I think it's also important for us, to, in order for us to do that work with integrity, as white people, we have to know and be in touch with and be able to, to uh, encounter and embrace our own history. And scrutinize that, right? Because you're not responsible for what went in front of you. You're not responsible for that. But you know what? Now you're responsible. You're responsible with what you do with this information. So unfortunately, you showed up today. And you saw these things. And now you have to, to cope with it. You cannot turn around and pretend like you weren't here. That, that would be an offense. That would be an offense. So um, I have laid a burden on you, I hope. Uh, but hopefully, it's one that will actually—it's—it's—it's it's, it's better. It's a better way to live. So um, that's where I'm going to stop. I think we're yeah, we're right on time. But I want to—I want to also allow. We got a couple minutes. I'm curious. I was kind of—I wanted to end like five minutes ago. But if if someone has any comments, maybe we can just do three, three comments or three minutes of comments. People have any reactions? Yeah.
2: I think following that. the State of the Union. Um, one thing I found particularly interesting was people's comments concerning the child care that Obama mentioned. And what I found, um, which kind of branches into the larger issue, um, is that people were very um, unempathetic. And it was directed at people of color, which was kind of unconscious, but that was where it was directed. And I think that overall, there seems to be a, just a lack of empathy. I mean. In the sense, not just being like, well, imagine what it's like being black, because it's mm-hmm. not really that simple. I can't I mean, do that, yeah. It, you can't just do that. And I think I mean, allowing yourself to open open yourself to other people's resp- I mean, life experiences, like you know, working hard at your job. I actually encounter this more often than I'd really um, really like to. But if you do well in your job, you'll succeed. That's the American right. dream. And right. it's like, but th- you're white. And right. I think that. Um, one of the biggest kind of barriers, some of the biggest barriers that are there are all due to a lack of empathy because we assume our life experiences right. are comparable.
0: Right. So absolutely. That's part of the American dream is that we live in a meritocracy. So Harrison, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. And if I can do it, why can't you? Because we, uh, we're all equal, right? That, that's part of the, that's part of what white privilege, uh, to, uh, which is a lack of empathy. I shouldn't say that I can't imagine, but I can only imagine. Yeah. Right? That's different than I'd, I know how you feel, but I can only imagine. And you can do that work, but it is about empathy. Empathy is huge. Empathy is huge. It is learned. It is not. It, we all have the capability, but it is. It's a learned skill. But it's dangerous. Really dangerous to be empathic, on all levels, especially with people who are saying like, "Well, this does suck. That would suck. I wouldn't be able to live with that." Then what do you do? Then you have to change. And that's, that's scary for a lot of people. So It's a good, it's a good comment, though. A. Brianna, did you ever hear? Yeah. I, I wonder if,
1: I, thi- I feel almost as though we need to take into account when the um, shooting of the little kid happened that <coughs> a, a few days a week before that, two cops were shot. Mm-hmm they were in a patrol car mm-hmm. eating lunch. Mm-hmm. So, in, in some sense, yes, I know, I know it, what, he was 13 and sick and all that, but I, I think that you, you can't necessarily blame, quote, blame it on this sort of, when you have to look at the entire city was re-
0: freaking out, mm. and to some, po- to some point still is. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm not saying it's all, I, I'm just saying that the, I'm using this particular issue and, and and linking it to the sort of the, that idea of fear and the legacy of that. But I'm I'm not covering all, I'm not explaining all problems, I'm just talking about this is, one of the thing about what it means to be white is that there we have a legacy of slavery and a legacy of discrimination, which we still carry in a, Im, Im, embedded in us very, much, very unconsciously, too. Just real quick, I, just, this is the one of the thing that, oh, go ahead, Taylor. Oh, no, 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 I, I can hold it. <coughs>
3: Right. to be you know, a black person, black female, black male. Right. And um, this camp, before I, just before I got here, I don't know if it was exactly the exact situation, but I was walking to um, court, uh for a hot second, and there was a white woman in front of me, and she kept looking over her shoulder. So, you know, I, I was much taller than her. You know, I'm 6'1". Yeah. What it exactly meant, but I felt like me being behind her, being a foot taller than her, she wasn't sure if I was a male or female. You know, she couldn't really see my oh. face. I felt like it was a direct moment of she was scared, and she huh. didn't know how to respond other than to let me go in front of her and let that fear that's behind her now be in front right. of her,
0: in in her sight. So yeah, like yeah. right,
3: so she can see it and then have control over how you know she wants to respond and wants to react, which is a prime example of mm. you know we can. Have Mm-hmm.
0: Understand it's like to be a person of color and walk mm-hmm. into a place and have you know, all eyes on you or people think a certain thing or, or act right. a certain way because of you know, what you look like. Right. So yeah. No. That's right. And who knows what was going on in her amygdala at that moment <laughs> that she saw a tall, dark figure behind her. Right. I, th- I think one of the things, and I don't say this for sympathy, but I'm not sure if it's appreciated. I don't think white people really understand this too, is how scared we are. White people are scared almost all the time, right? And we operate out of that paradigm of fear so much of the time, especially when it comes to uh, issues of color. And that's not to elicit sympathy, not like, don't feel sorry for us. Because the unfortunate thing is when you're scared and you have all the power, you can do some serious damage. Can you and fear, and you, uh, when you put those two things together, that is, that's lethal. Mm-hmm. That's lethal. I mean, studying genocide is like, that's a, that is the, that is the cocktail that will get a genocide going. But it's. I think I don't see it as t- only different by degrees, in, in this country, kind of a slow legal burn uh, of fear and and a kind of that. I don't see it as qualitative. <laughs> yeah. So, does
1: that justification of the fear?
0: It's not take a justification, hopefully. No it's an explanation.
1: Okay. Okay. Not no, none of this, but. Like, there's I'm thinking that even if you can prove that they were scared for their life mm-hmm. at those moments, does that take away from the responsibility? Like, if the scenario had been with a white person and they couldn't have, apparently, like, they couldn't have proven maybe that there mm-hmm. was a sa- the same kind of danger or the same kind of fear, then it's totally a different scenario. Mm-hmm. Th- that's that's the part that I struggle with I did, yep. in, the, this, and, in all these trials and and all these cases, whether, whether the the existence of that fear somehow uh, not allows well, allows for them being able to like, take that amount of force.
0: Yep, and I think that, that's the distinction I made right at the beginning that there's a difference between understanding and, and justifying that's what I'm struggling or with I, it is a huge struggle on a on a, at a on a personal level we all struggle with that because that's the danger in empathizing. So when you empathize with Darren Wilson and you say, yeah, he did see the face of a demon. Yeah, he did feel like it, you know, but does that justify, does that make his actions right? And, and I think we can as a society it's say no, no, it's not. And, and that kind of fear, that kind of is something that we have to address both on the individual level, that we don't want people who police, who carry firearms, to have that kind of, uh, that, that if they haven't deconstructed, if they haven't made conscious what is unconscious, then they are a danger. That's at a systemic level we have to do that uh, and, and make sure that we have better police officers so that they are aware of these forces so that when they see a black face they can slow down and not allow their limbic systems to, to, to re- get their hands to their and draw their weapons because they're acting, that's, not, that's inordinate fear, that is unproductive and we count on our police officers to be better than regular people. That's why we <coughs> train them. How we train police officers is, is huge if we don't train them to be aware of these forces and if we just have these well let's get the racists out of here and then everybody else will be fine we're missing the point but that doesn't mean that i sanctioned that i think that if if he had been tried it would have felt very unfair to him because he would have been like no one else has been tried before and now you you start with me right but it's got to start somewhere this is a hard thing for society like where do you start how where do you change the culture and who's going to be the first cop to be tried on that when no one else in front of him had, but he's the first. You know why? Because we've shifted as a culture and that's no longer acceptable. This is the fight we're in because police departments are saying, you can't change the way we do it. And society is starting to say, "Mm, yes, we can. We try to do it with the military. We try to do, you know, this is how we roll as a culture. This is the work that we have to do. And the more we press to raise the standards of this, then that's when change will happen. If we just let them go, and just let them decide. We won't see a lot of change. We won't. Great comments. Excellent. Thank you all for coming very much. I appreciate it.